Three, I need access to your XLR ports. <laughs> yeah, it has been a while. Intern the hut! Aku, Atima. There's rubbing alcohol and some Q-tips next to M3D1A. I need you to clean out his XLR inputs. Aniki. Off! That's his quarter-inch input. He hates being touched there. Off! He's a Zulus! M3 is only dangerous when you clean the wrong port. That was the 8-inch input. Come! Wait, that was his XLR. He must just not like you. Da shoota! Anyway, you need to clean that port every week now. Welcome to Jedi Master's Degree. Today we're doing a New Hope Act 2 and we're going to be talking about the influences on this movie. But before we get into that, I want to let you know we have an email address that I would really like you to use. It's JediMastersDegree at gmail.com. If you have any requests for what you would like to hear me cover over Season 2, I would love to hear it. Of course, Season 2 will be wide open with the Legends canon up until the special edition movie comes out. So if you have anything from that period that you hope that I cover, please let me know. Season one, I've already got everything mapped out, but I'm always looking ahead to the next season. And if you just have any lines about the show, I'd love to hear from you. So let's get back onto the influences of Star Wars. So I would like to say first off that the directors that came up in the 70s that I talked about last podcast, that group of friends of Scorsese, De Palma, Spielberg, and Lucas, not only were they very instrumental in changing the way that Hollywood worked, but they were really the first generation that grew up their entire lives watching movies on TV and grew up with shorthand of what movies were. You know, you had a lot of people that were discovering the art of filmmaking and that were inventing things as they went along and really had no preconceived notion of what a movie was. This is the first generation where what a movie was was set into stone. It's a matter of what can we do within that shape to change things. And one way that you do it is you figure out what you like and you expand on that or you do twists on that or you find a new way to present it. They were all avid watchers of European cinema which a lot of Americans hadn't seen at this point and so they were folding that in with classic structures that they really liked. And so this is some of the movies, books, comic books that George Lucas pulled from to get elements of Star Wars. We already talked about A Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell which is probably the most crucial thing to understanding Star Wars or really any kind of fictional story or myth. So let's talk about these other forms of media that helped inform Star Wars. The Barsoom novels were a big influence for Lucas, written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. You might know Edgar Rice Burroughs from writing Tarzan. Before he wrote Tarzan, he wrote 11 Barsoom novels. And these were about the character John Carter, who was a Civil War soldier who was suddenly transported to Mars. You might remember that there was a John Carter movie, and a lot of people dismissed it when 
when they saw it saying it was a Star Wars ripoff. Well, guess what? <laughs> it was a Star Wars ripoff because the source material was ripped off by Star Wars. It's just how this stuff works sometimes. But John Carter being transported from Earth to Mars, it's taking the familiar, going to a place that you really don't understand. This is very similar to Luke being transported from Tatooine into the middle of this intergalactic battle. And the John Carter novels, Mars is depleted of resources and it's starving to death very slowly. And so they're all fighting over the resources and John Carter is in the middle of this. The character discovers that the lesser gravity of Mars makes him able to jump very high. And so this helps him dispatch enemies easier. It's very similar to Luke discovering the force and having power suddenly that helps make him more formidable. Certainly helps him destroy the Death Star when nobody else can. There's an alien race called the Lotharians that are skilled in telepathy and debate philosophy amongst themselves and they make their society look like it's thriving even though it's not. This has a lot of parallels to the Jedi Council. The Jedi Council was definitely in there discussing philosophy when they should have been taking action at certain things and their society was crumbling around them even though it looked like it was not. This is a lot of what the prequels were. The telepathy that the Lotharians have, the Jedi's definitely have that. There's an alien race in those novels called the Hormads that were created in labs to be slaves, workers, and warriors. This mirrors what they did in Attack of the Clones with having clones of Jango Fett that were created in a lab to fight battles. There's creatures named Banths, which is pretty similar to Banthas, and there's insects named Sith. Has to be a direct reference. And then there's a character named Deja Thoris, who often wears metal bikinis on the book covers. This looks a lot like Leia's slave girl outfit in Return of the Jedi. Casablanca, of course, is a classic movie that's considered one of the best movies of all time. The opening scene of the cafe in Casablanca is very similar to Moss Eisley Cantina in a couple of ways. We get to zoom around the place to see what's going on in the bar and get a feel of the geography of it. We see an entertainer playing piano in the middle of it. This is quite similar to the band that's playing in the middle of the Moss Eisley Cantina. There's questionable characters smoking and drinking everywhere and seeming to have a good time, but probably up to some nefarious business. And of course, the characters are there for some nefarious business. They want to escape illegally, and so they need to find a guy to help them. This is exactly what's in that scene from Moss Eisley. The Dam Busters was a movie, I believe, about World War II. Star Wars took so much of their third act from that movie. So you've got a blueprint of the Death Star with a bomb going into the vent that causes a chain reaction that causes the Death Star to explode, right? Well, within the Dam Busters, you see them unfold the hand-drawn map of a dam that's got this little, I guess, vent area that they're going to send bombers over it. And if they can get it perfectly within that hole, the bomb will go down and set up a chain reaction to destroy the entire dam. We see the X-Wings in Star Wars chattering with each other and the way that it's filmed with them in the cockpit is exactly the way it looks in Star Wars when you've got the Red Squadron preparing to go to war with the Death Star. They wind up missing the target once and so they have two guys double back. One of them holds off the planes while the other one manages to get the bomb in place and the whole dam blows. Sound familiar? And of course the cinematography that worked on Dam Busters was Gilbert Taylor. So he was the guy that got in an argument with George Lucas over a light and Lucas wound up firing. Same guy. So there's probably a reason why it looked so close. The Bridges of Toki Re had a dogfight sequence that was exactly taken for Star Wars that was between X-Wings and TIE Fighters. And then we've got the 
spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone. So they took a lot. But ironically, Sergio Leone was really famous for taking older westerns, taking the things that really look good and remixing them. A Quentin Tarantino of his day, if you will. And of course, Tarantino's mentioned him as a big influence. George Lucas owes a lot of influence of Star Wars to Sergio Leone as well. When you see Han Solo kicked back in the table and he fires at Greedo, this is exactly something we see in the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's just set up on opposite sides of the screen. We see one of the characters is leaning back in his chair and he fires his gun through a table as another guy is about to draw his gun and kills him. Every time you see a character in the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know that he's there because you hear a spur lightly jingling. This was repeated in Empire Strikes Back with Boba Fett. Every time you see Boba Fett, they put a noise of a spur jingling. Once Upon a Time in the West was another movie that Sergio Leone did. You see some of the bads of the movie entering by emerging through smoke of a massacre that they ordered. Of course, you've got that really famous scene at the beginning of Star Wars where you see Vader walking through all the smoke of that massacre that he had just ordered on the Rebel Alliance. It's an amazing way to introduce a villain, and of course, it didn't come from nowhere. So one of the big influences on Sergio Leone, who is also an influence on George Lucas, was John Ford. And in particular, the really big scene that we're going to talk about is from The Searchers. And this is where John Wayne's character comes home from his ranch to find that much of his family has been slaughtered by Native Americans. Another chunk of his family has been kidnapped by them. This spurs him to move forward and murder the natives. So in Star Wars, you have Luke comes home. He finds his uncle and aunt have been murdered and this spurs him to move forward. Not to seek revenge, though, just to move forward. He's supposed to be on the beginning of this light path. But what's interesting is George Lucas comes back to this later in Attack of the Clones and he actually has it mirror with Anakin where Anakin is doing exactly what John Wayne is doing. He comes home. He sees people are murdered. He thinks that some of them have been kidnapped and so he just goes on a revenge spree and kills all of these sand people just out of pure rage. And so it's shown to be negative and shows the difference between the characters of Luke and Anakin. And it's interesting that he aped the same scene twice but did it in very different ways which had very different consequences. One of the biggest influences on George Lucas was Akira Kurosawa. He was a Japanese filmmaker and he did this movie Hidden Fortress which is probably one of the most influential movies of all time. He has these two peasants in there named Tahai and Madashishi who are trying to get away from a war that they don't want to fight. They're the lowest characters and they have the biggest problems. This is exactly like R2-D2 and C-3PO. They are the lowest characters because they're droids, right? Like we've seen them at the bar. They're not allowed to serve droids in the bar. Everybody talks crap with them. When Yoda sees R2-D2, he must recognize him, but he's just banging him with the stick anyway. Like, who cares? It's just a droid. They're the lowest characters, but also they have the fate of the galaxy resting on them because they have the plans for the Death Star. And C-3PO definitely doesn't want a part of this war, but he's sucked into it anyway. The visual wipes in Star Wars, and what I mean by wipe is when they cut from scene to scene, you see one scene kind of shifts down into another scene or across. Those are called wipes. They took them from Hidden Fortress. They would have, for an example, a visual wipe that would go left or right, but you would see a speeder going to the left, and so it was as if the action was causing the wipe to happen. That was taken from Hidden Fortress. And then, of course, the Empire is looking for a Hidden Fortress in Star Wars, right? Like, they're looking for the Hidden Rebel base. Uh, Yojimbo is another Akira Kurosawa movie. 
And there's a part where this man comes up and brags to these heroes that they're wanted men. And then they threaten the heroes and they wind up getting an arm cut off. That scene in Mos Eisley Cantina exactly taken from Yojimbo. In 2001 Space Odyssey, all of the spaceships that they made, Stanley Kubrick had it accomplished by having his technical crews mashing together model airplane kits and model cars and taking parts of them and kind of pushing them together to make something look like something else. They did this for Star Wars all over the place. The Death Star is just a bunch of models that are glued together where you just use pieces so that it doesn't necessarily look like that's a plane glued to a Jeep. You know, that wouldn't work. But if you just take these pieces and you keep gluing them into a general shape, you get the Death Star, you get a Star Destroyer, you get all of this kind of stuff. So they took that idea from 2001 Space Odyssey and they might have gotten the idea to repeat that by hiring most of 2001's crew. This was a movie that was incredibly influential on George Lucas. And one of the things that really worked for him was the classical score. At the time, science fiction movies would always use kind of synth heavy scores. It was the early days of synthesizer or they would use a theremin like you know the kind of noise and George Lucas really liked how in 2001 they used classical music because when Stanley Kubrick was making it he did these temp tracks which is the music you put in to cut a scene to and then you find music that works with it later Stanley Kubrick found that he really liked the classical music so he kept it in and so George Lucas was going to do that and that was when Steven Spielberg suggested John Williams to him as we talked about last episode and the rest is history Lawrence of Arabia the way that they do these big sweeping shots shots of the desert. Star Wars does exactly that in Tatooine when they're filming Tunisia. They set the cameras the same way and this also helped influence him in the hiring Alec Guinness. Like we said last episode, he needed a big character actor and Alec Guinness had just done the bridge over the river Kwai, but also he did this movie that George Lucas had a big fondness for, so it just made sense. Captain Blood was another movie that was really influential on George Lucas. He grew up watching a lot of swashbuckler movies and there was no swashbuckler on the screen that was more famous than Errol Flynn and this was his most famous movie and so George Lucas took a lot of the swashbuckling scenes and recreated them with the lightsabers. In addition to that, John Williams also took the symphonic scores from Captain Blood and found ways to manipulate those into telling his space opera and so that really played into the soundtrack for Star Wars and for Indiana Jones when he did that. George Lucas also was looking at the James Bond franchise and seeing how they always start with a big action sequence. So if you think about Star Wars movies, they always start with an action scene. Every single one. He also noticed that the franchise was constantly refreshing itself for modern audiences. And so he applied that to Star Wars over the years. Angelino Leigh Brackett, she was a writer of a lot of science fiction novels. She was known as Queen of the Space Opera. The tone in which she wrote a lot of these stories, George Lucas copied. She also was a writer of the first draft of Empire Strikes Back. I have no idea how much of what she wrote stayed into the screenplay. Obviously, Lawrence Kasdan did the last draft, but she was definitely a part of it when it was being worked. The Lensman stories that were being done by E.E. E. Doc Smith. 
They were about mystical interstellar nights. Sound like Jedi Knights to you? It does to me. Then there was Kaldar, Planet of Antares. This was published for Weird Tales. It was written by Edmund Hamilton, and it describes the sword that's a long rapier that has a catch in the hilt that made the blade shine with light and then annihilated anything it touched. So obviously that's where he got the idea for the lightsabers. Buck Rogers had a character named Wilma Deering. She's a female soldier who's smart and probably more capable capable than Buck Rogers. This seems to lend credence that that's where he got the idea for Princess Leia. She was basically a woman soldier for the Rebel Alliance who's smart and probably smarter than all the rest of the trio. Flash Gordon, he took a ton from. You've got Ming, the Merciless. He's the Emperor of the Galaxy. That's pretty similar to Emperor Palpatine in the Star Wars movies. You have the Hawkman's floating city in Flash Gordon. Pretty similar to Cloud City in Empire Strikes Back. You have a metal man that's a dusky copper color who's a trained servant and speaks in polite phrases. It's pretty similar in, in a lot of ways to C-3PO. And then at the beginning of the Flash Gordon serials, there's a text scroll at the same angle that the Star Wars text scroll is at with four period ellipses. There was Dune. The biggest thing about Dune that seems to have been influencing Star Wars is the spice. In Dune, there's spice that's a drug that controls all these people. Well... The Kessel Spice Mines they refer to in Star Wars, and you find out as you go further, Spice is the drug in Star Wars. So they took that. They have vehicles named Sandcrawlers in both. There's the voice in Dune that controls people. In Star Wars, it's the Jedi Mind Trick. And then there's a character in Dune named Leto II, God Emperor of Dune. It's very similar to Jabba the Hutt. It's a big slug that's muscular that has arms and hands that's about 15 feet long and sits on a big dais. The Wizard of Oz. They're both about kids who are raised on a farm by an aunt and uncle and they go to a new land with companions that include a creature covered with fur and a metal man. The robots from Metropolis and Silent Running were shown to Ralph McQuarrie when we talked about him doing those paintings to show to the executives of Fox last episode. Those were the robots from the movies that George Lucas showed him to get the feel from. And then also Tommy Tomorrow the Planeteers was this comic book that George Lucas liked and in particular there's one character named Captain Brentwood who learns that he's a space pirate. Mark Black is his father. That sounds kind of familiar. I don't know why. Maybe we'll, we'll think about this again when we do Act 3 of Empire Strikes Back. And then in this documentary about George Lucas with Star Wars, he was showing this panel from War of the Worlds in a Classics Illustrated 124. And it's got soldiers wearing these round helmets carrying ray guns. They've got armies of brainwashed soldiers with these big fighting machines. George Lucas said this was the aesthetic he was going to for Star Wars. Now, that's a lot of movies I talked about that were smashed together. Now, it did George Lucas rob this stuff? No. He found all of these things and mixed it in a way to make a new thing. And that's how a lot of creativity is. There's the argument that there's only really a couple original stories to tell. That might be true, but there's so much variance in how you can tell those stories, how you can show these stories that it's almost endless. And so I think George Lucas found a way to take the most important elements of all these things and twist it up into this franchise that everybody has different different reasons why they love it it's partly why it works it's because he's pulling from so many things let's get back into a new hope we start out with obi-wan luke c-3po and r2d2 up on a ridge looking at the moss Eisley spaceport from a distance obi-wan warns luke that 
You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. And so they head off into the spaceport. This is a quick reminder that we are not doing the special editions on this movie. We're talking about the old ones as seen in 1977. So they pull into the spaceport. A bunch of stormtroopers line up around their speeder. They ask Obi-Wan how long they've had the droid. And he says that they've had it for three or four seasons. He's trying to play it cool and tell them that they're for sale if they want them. Then they hold, they do the whole thing where they ask for his identification. He says, you don't need our identification. And then he tells them that they aren't the droids they're looking for. They repeat everything he says, blah, 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 Jedi mind trick. This is the first time we really see a Jedi power from Obi-Wan. And it's weirdly enough, kind of a dark side power. It's a weird one to show first, but they do what they do. Uh, there's an insult to the Jawas that Luke throws out. He says, I can't abide by these Jawas. It kind of shoes them off. Uh, seems a slight bit racist when we think about it now, but whatever. Anyway, so Obi-Wan explains to Luke that he used the force to influence the stormtrooper. And then he warns him that inside the cantina, he's got to watch his step. It's going to be pretty rough and be ready for anything. And so they come walking in and immediately the droids are turned away because, as we know, everybody's racist towards the droids in the Star Wars universe. We see all manner of aliens. We got the Wolfman guy. We got the Hammerhead guy. We got the guy with kind of glowy eyes and the green head. You got a straight up astronaut walking around. You got a guy with a domed head smoking a a hookah in the middle of the bar and then you got just kind of a redneck bartender serving drinks to everybody you got the devil looking around you got figrin dan and the module nodes playing some music there uh one of two bands that's famous in the star wars universe max rebo is the other we'll see him return of the jedi anyway the redneck bartender immediately screams that the droids aren't welcome in there and they'll have to wait outside and so luke tells him to go wait by the speeder c-3po of course obeys and then you notice green Greedo kind of looking over to the side. While everybody else is doing the same thing, Greedo is all by himself, so a little bit of foreshadowing, he'll be important. Luke orders a drink from the bartender, and just immediately somebody goes to start garbage with him. I don't know what the aliens call, but it's a guy with kind of the butt on his chin, and then the other guy says he doesn't like you, and Luke says, I'm sorry, and goes, I don't like you either. You just watch yourself. We're wanted men. I have a death sentence on 12 systems. And Luke says, I'll be careful, and he says, you'll be dead. And of course, Obi-Wan comes in. He gives him the old, he's not worth the effort. Let me get you something. The guy flings Luke across a bar into a table and Obi-Wan pulls his lightsaber, cuts off his hand immediately, which is strangely hairy. Never quite put together why his hand is so hairy when the rest of his body isn't. But you know, different strokes for different aliens. Anyway, Obi-Wan had just been chatting with Chewbacca. So Chewbacca kind of looks calmly. Obi-Wan helps Luke back up and tells him that Chewbacca is the first mate on a ship that might suit them and they go over to meet Han Solo. Meanwhile they cut to the droids in one of those fun little wipes and we notice that the stormtroopers are talking to somebody out there and so they're clearly closing in on the droids. We go back inside the cantina and Han Solo introduces himself and brags about the Falcon telling them it'll be fast enough for whatever they need and tells them that it's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Obi-Wan does not look impressed. Yes what's a cargo because 
Han is a smuggler. And Obi-Wan says, him, the boy, couple of droids and no questions. And Han immediately senses that this whole thing is about avoiding the law. And so he starts to try and up the ante. And so he tells him that he'll need 10,000 all in advance. Luke balks at it. Tells him that he could do it himself and get a ship for that price. But Obi-Wan kind of rolls his eyes at Luke and tells Han that he'll give him 2000 now and 15000 when they get to Alderaan. Solo's pretty happy with themselves. So he tells him they got a ship and to meet him in Docking Bay 94. And he points out that some stormtroopers are looking at him. Of course, the bartender points over their way. And right when the stormtroopers get over there, Luke and Obi-Wan are gone, leaving just Chewbacca and Han watching them. Chewbacca kind of side-eyes as Han saying, these guys must be really desperate. This could save my neck. This is perfect it just sets up han solo right away this is a rogue he's always living on the edge of the law he has no problem lying to authority and also he's in a lot of trouble of course and then you get greedo who comes in to reaffirm that he's in a bunch of trouble and telling him that he should have paid java when he had the chance and that he put a price on his head so large that every bounty hunter in the galaxy is looking for him and so han tells him that he's got the money and greedo tells him if you give it to me i might forget that i found you so right away he's telling han Han, yeah, you're going to have to earn even more money because you're going to have to pay me off just to survive this encounter. So Han subtly loads his blaster while he's back against the wall in his chair. And then he pulls his blaster. And then just want to say this now, and we will focus in on it more in the third season. But Greedo says, I've been looking forward to this a long time. Han Solo says, yes, I bet you have. And the screen goes bright. There's an explosion and Greedo falls onto the table. So Han Solo fired, killed Greedo. It gives an image of an anti-hero, somebody who's going to help out our heroes, but is not somebody who's necessarily a good person. He's walking over the bartender, flips him a coin, tells him sorry about the mess. And then we cut back to Grand Moff Tarkin and Darth Vader are speaking back and forth. Vader's upset that the Imperial torture droid didn't work. And so he starts talking to Grand Moff Tarkin, who decides it's time to test out their Death Star and is looking at this as an opportunity to get Princess Leia to talk then we cut back down to Tatooine and you've got some stormtroopers are going back and forth to all these little houses looking for R2-D2 and C-3PO I really feel like the way they set this up it's a bit of Vietnam imagery watching soldiers go back and forth trying to find the VC this movie is influenced by Vietnam quite a bit George Lucas has been pretty open about this and so there are these little things that tag onto it such as that scene so you got Luke and Obi-Wan are rushing down to the dock to meet Han Solo. They've got a strange alien in a hooded robe following him. He's got a really long snout and kind of like aviator goggles. And the alien pulls up a communicator and I think we can assume alerts the stormtroopers. Luke and Obi-Wan and C-3PO find Chewbacca. They show him the Millennium Falcon. Han brags that the Millennium Falcon may not look like much, but he made modifications and she's a fast ship, blah, blah, blah. Chewbacca gets in and starts firing up the ship and then right at that moment as r2d2 is kind of plodding along suddenly the stormtroopers come marching up with their guns the hooded alien tells them where they're at and suddenly they're in a firefight and so this moment on stormtroopers can't hit anything it becomes the stormtroopers that we're so used to so han goes running into the falcon tells Chewie to get him going and they fly off a of tatooine of course immediately because it's star wars they see an imperial cruiser and so they put up their shields and start making 
making calculations to jump to light speed. This is one thing I like is they set up that they can go these big distance through light speed, but because a computer has to make the calculations, it always gives them something to have an action sequence. It's a really smart device. Of course, Han Solo gives the line of traveling through hyperspace ain't like dust and crops, boys. Without precise calculations, we fly right through a star, bounce too close to a supernova, and that would end your trip real quick, wouldn't it? And then you got Luke reaching over at a flashing button and Han's smacking his hand, telling him to get in the back. I think this really sets up the dynamic between Luke and Han pretty well. You see that Luke is innocent and a little bit annoying, to be honest, because he's in this new world and doesn't quite know how to operate. And Han is seasoned and he's seen a few things and he's really annoyed at the fact that there's this other guy who just won't back off and won't take him at his word and listen to what he's got to say. We cut over to Grand Moff Tarkin and Princess Leia talks about how he's got Vader on a leash and how she could smell him from a long ways away. Not in those words. Uh, And then immediately Grand Moff Tarkin lets her know you're at a ceremony to make this battle station operational. She says, I'm surprised you have the the courage to take responsibility yourself and he says no star system will dare oppose the emperor now and she says the more you tighten your grip tarkin the more systems will slip through your fingers and he says not after we demonstrate the power of this station in a way you have determined the choice of planet that will be destroyed first since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base I have chosen to test the station's destructive power on your home planet of Alderaan. And they have Alderaan right in their sights. And of course, Princess Leia freaks out, tries to get him to stop. And so he tells her, tell me where the base is and we'll fire at the base instead of your home planet. And he backs up into Leia. And it's interesting because she doesn't show any fear to Darth Vader, but she definitely shows fear to him at that point because she understands the gravity of what he's about to do. So she tells him Datooine and he immediately fires on the planet. Something that I like about that moment is that they show as if it's a moment of weakness with her. And so she's trying to get him to stop destroying the planet. And he destroys it because he's an evil person. They really set it up right there. But you find out later that she was strong enough to remember to tell a lie. But what I like about it is they give you the opportunity at the time. You don't put yourself in a position as a viewer where you start to think, that's terrible that she would stick up for the Rebel Alliance, but not this whole planet because you see he was going to destroy it anyway and then we go over to obi-wan and luke luke's practicing with a remote and obi-wan says i felt a great disturbance in the force as if a million voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced i fear something terrible has happened Then he dismisses it and tells Luke to get on with his exercises. Han Solo comes back, kind of bragging about how he outran him and watches Luke playing with the remote. C-3PO and R2-D2 are playing hollow chess with Chewbacca. R2-D2 starts to win the game, and of course that is when Han Solo gives a warning to R2-D2 that it's not wise to upset a Wookiee and C-3PO. But sir, nobody ever says that don't upset a droid. And he says that's because droids aren't known to pull arm sockets out when they lose. C-3PO says, I see your point. I suggest a new strategy, R2. Let the Wookiee win. Luke continues practicing, trying to block the remote's little lasers. And Obi-Wan tells him to feel the force flowing through him. And then the laser hits him. And Han Solo gives him the line about hokey religions. 
and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side. And Luke says, you don't believe in the Force, do you? And Han Solo gives his whole opinion of, I've been around everywhere and I've never seen anything that makes me believe that the Force would exist and that he has control of his own destiny. It's a lot of simple tricks and nonsense. When you think about the Force as a religion, Han Solo is giving the agnostic point of view because he's not saying that it doesn't exist. He's just saying he's seen no evidence of it. So I'd like to point that out. Han Solo, big agnostic. (laughs) Anyway, so Obi-Wan puts the blaster shield down on Luke's helmet and he can't see what he's doing. And then he starts blocking the remote and Han Solo lets him know it was luck. And that's when they approach Alderaan. Luke lets Obi-Wan know that he felt something, and Obi-Wan's telling him, That's good, you've taken your step into a larger world. Back on the Death Star, one of the officers tells Tarkin that they looked around and there's no base on Datooine. And so Tarkin's pissed off and tells him to terminate her immediately. Han Solo comes out of hyperspace and then sees rocks flying at him from everywhere, thinking that they landed in the middle of a meteor shower, but he can't quite figure out what happened because they're in position and there's no Alderaan. And Obi-Wan's reaching out with the Force and realizes that the planet was destroyed by the Empire, and they see a TIE fighter flying over. This worries Han, so he has Chewie jam the signal. So that they don't get found out by the Empire. And Obi-Wan points out that a fighter that size couldn't have gotten out to deep space by itself. Han says that he's going to destroy it before it can tell anybody. And then right as the TIE fighters in range, they see a moon. But it turns out, that's no moon. It's a space station. And Luke utters the famous line, I've got a bad feeling about this. And we're going to be having bad feelings about this for a while. This is in every Star Wars movie, many of the shows, many of the books, many of the comics. It is the most uttered line in Star Wars. They get pulled into the Death Star through a tractor beam. Han decides he's going to fight his way out. Obi-Wan tells him that there's alternatives to fighting. The Falcon slowly gets pulled in and all the stormtroopers come marching up. They notice that it matches the description of a ship around Moss Eisley, and so they think it might have the droids with the plans. Darth Vader comes walking up to the ship among all the stormtroopers, and an officer with a hat just a little too big for his head tells him that there's nobody on board, there's no droids, they must have jettisoned everybody, and so Darth Vader says that he wants a scan crew on board, and he wants every part of the ship scanned, and that he senses something, a presence that he hasn't felt since. Ellipses! And so they send a scanning crew on board to check it out, and as soon as the last stormtrooper walks off off the ship we see han solo and luke pop out their heads they were in some storage containers that han used for smuggling the scanners go to bring a big box on board the falcon they disappear and then you hear han yelling hey can you give me a hand with this and the stormtroopers come up and we hear everybody being mugged and then we see an officer asking one of the stormtroopers why isn't he at his post do you copy and then you see one of the stormtroopers kind of knock on his helmet showing that he's not able to communicate with him so the officer opens the door and Chewbacca suddenly knocks him down and then one of the other stormtroopers blows him away flanked by Obi-Wan and C-3PO they pull off their helmets the one with the blaster was Han Solo and the last one to come through is Luke they have R2 plug into the system to try and find where the tractor beam is and R2-D2 finds it but tells him that it's far away in the Death Star which if you think about it it could be pretty freaking far if it's the size of a moon you might be walking for 
days to get to that location, but fortunately, I guess it's close. Obi-Wan goes to leave alone, but tells Luke he needs to stay with everybody else, and says if the droids fall in the hands of the Empire, that it'll be bad for everybody. And he tells him that the Force will be with you, always, and runs off. Han gives Luke a little bit of crap about Obi-Wan. Of course, Luke just jumps to his defense all upset. And then R2-D2 found Princess Leia and finds what detention block she's in and finds out that she's scheduled to be terminated. And this is going to be a difficult discussion between Han and Luke someday because someday it's going to come out that Han didn't care about her being executed and all he wanted was a little bit of cash. And the fact that they wind up hooking up later on makes that pretty interesting. But yeah, so as I was saying, Luke figures out that if he bribes Han Solo, lets her know that she's rich, he'll totally go running. And so, of course, it works. Never mind that her planet's treasury has been blown to bits. Luke gets an idea for going to get her, and he tries to put some handcuffs on Chewie. Chewie flips out at her, of course, because Chewie has slavery issues. And Han, who Chewie owes a life debt to, convinces Chewie to put on the handcuffs and has an idea of what Luke's trying to do. They leave the droids behind and tell him to leave the doors locked. And they go walking out into the Death Star. Get the little mouse droid that comes driving up and sees Chewie. Chewie immediately growls at it and it scurries off. Pretty fun little scene. We see him walking down the Death Star and Obi-Wan jumping from spot to spot, remaining unseen. We see Darth Vader stop and look around for a second. He can tell something's up. The boys get to the detention center. And the officer asks where they're taking Chewie. They say it's a prison transfer. And he says, I wasn't notified. I'll have to clear it makes a notion to a couple of guards who just immediately draw and walk towards him which is crazy it's crazy that every single person are just like you know what let's walk over to you very menacingly anyway chewy hits him a big gun battle happens they find the exact cell number that princess leia is in the stormtroopers are trying to contact and figure out what's going on and han solo gives a whole we had a slight weapons malfunction here uh, everything's fine we're all fine thank you how are you and they said they're sending a squad up and he's says no we got a reactor leak give us a few minutes to lock it down it's dangerous and they ask who is this what's your operating number and of course he blows away the panel because the conversation was boring anyway (laughs) i've heard that harrison ford improvised that entire scene because he wanted it to sound natural that he was nervous and not sure of what to say luke finds the cell with princess leia he opens the door she says aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper and he pulls off the helmet and says i'm luke skywalker i'm here to rescue you and then he says he's got the r2 unit and ben kenobi she goes running with him but i do love that princess leia is there to just piss on everybody right to the very end so we see Vader and Tarkin, and Vader tells him that he sensed the presence of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Tarkin says that's impossible. Kenobi would have to be dead by now and says the Jedi are extinct. Their fire has gone out of the universe, and you're all that's left of their religion. And Vader tells him not to underestimate the power of the Force. And that's when they hear that Princess Leia is free. Tarkin realizes that Obi-Wan Kenobi probably is on board if she's free. And so Vader says that he's going to deal with him himself. So we see Stormtrooper is coming after everybody. Han Solo's blasting away. He knocks a hole in the door. They come running through the door. Leia chews out Han saying that they managed to cut off their only escape route. And at that moment, Luke is asking C-3PO if there's any other way out of the cell bay. C-3PO says that 
all troops have been alerted to their presence and that all information on their level is restricted. Meanwhile, we hear somebody outside of the door yelling to get in. Princess Leia yells at them for rescuing them, but not having a plan to rescue themselves. And Leia blows a hole in the side of the door saying somebody has to rescue their skins. And she leaps into the garbage chute. Chewie doesn't want to go in there and Han yells, I don't care what you smell, just get in there. And then winds up kicking him down. Always one of my favorite scenes. I forget about it every time until I see it. Han's talking to Luke and he says, either I'm going to kill her or I'm going to fall in love with her. And then he gives one last blast before he follows Luke into the chute. Chewie's flipping out when they land in all the garbage and he can't get out of the door. Han's giving a what an incredible smell you found. Han tries to blow open the door and the blaster ricochets over and over and over again, almost killing him. And they find out that it's locked magnetically. Han calls Princess Leia your warship for the first time. They immediately hate each other. They're going to be a gray couple. Luke calls out that he felt something alive in there. Then we see a little hint of a tentacle going through the garbage. We see an eye pop up, look around, and then all of a sudden the tentacle wraps around Luke and pulls him under. Uh, It's interesting to note with this garbage scene. So apparently it was very stinky in there and they really didn't like filming it. I think they were down there for two days filming all their scenes but the Chewbacca costume just smelled for the rest of the shoot because they couldn't get it out of the costume so there is a real price to recording this scene Han finds Luke pulls him back up the tentacle keeps pulling him down and then eventually Luke says that he doesn't know how he got free it just disappeared and that's when you get Han Solo saying I got a bad feeling about this and that's when the walls start to close in Han gets a giant rod and tries to put it between the walls. The rod snaps. Luke finds his communicator. He's asking C-3PO, where is he? And we see that C-3PO and R2-D2 are hiding from the stormtroopers. They open up a closet and C-3PO starts screaming about how they're madmen and they're heading to the prison level. So the stormtroopers go running off because in addition to being really bad shots from here on out, they're incredibly stupid. They left one stormtrooper in the room and so C-3PO tells him that R2's circuits were overrun and so he's taking him down to maintenance and so the stormtrooper tells him to go ahead because if anything stormtrooper is very thorough the droids go down to the detention level they don't see him C-3PO is relieved that when R2-D2 scanned through the systems they hadn't found Luke or Han yet but he still can't figure out where they're at because they're trying to ratchet up the tension and so R2 reminds C-3PO to use the comm link so he starts talking to Luke and Luke's telling him to shut down the garbage disposal they don't know which one and so they shut them all down and then of course they're all yelling because they're excited that the walls stop crushing them and c-3po thinks that they got murdered but of course they didn't they're celebrating that they're about to get out they give the unit number of the garbage disposal and then we see obi-wan kenobi slinking around again he goes down a bridge and then walks around a platform right out of sight of the stormtroopers pulls a switch which turns off a beam and then he pulls another lever and then you see the power go down for the tractor beam Han fires at something and Leia's yelling at him not to Chewbacca shakes his head no and then Princess Leia starts nagging him again gives her the whole I take orders from just one person me and then she says it's amazing you're alive will somebody get this big walking carpet out of the way and Han says no reward is worth this Obi-Wan sneaks around the end stormtroopers are looking the other way and then he makes a noise that they don't notice that they're there the droids let han and luke know that they're in the hangar 
hangar. And that's right when Luke and Han and Leia run into a bunch of stormtroopers. And so Han goes running after him with a blaster. They run the other way. And then he runs into another contingency of them. And they go and chase him. And so he meets up with Chewbacca running off. Luke and Leia go running right to the edge of a bridge. Leia closes the door. Luke destroys the control panel. And Leia realizes that the controls for the bridge was just blasted by Luke. Stormtroopers start firing at him on the ledge. So they start firing back. That's when Luke finds the tractor cable or whatever the hell it is on his belt. Starts extending it out while Leia takes a bunch of shots at the stormtrooper. Luke throws the tractor cable up to a pipe. And then they go swinging across right before Princess Leia gives him a smooch on the cheek and says, for good luck. (sighs) The sexual tension is just, it's so high between those two. See Obi-Wan sneaking around a little bit more. And then R2-D2 and C-3PO back in the hangar wondering where they could be. We've got Han Solo continuing to run from the stormtroopers, taking the occasional shot. They go running through a door that closes in a diamond blast. And then we see Obi-Wan slow down as he's walking and sees Darth Vader. And I think this is a good place to stop. So we will be talking about Act 3 next episode of A New Hope. And we'll be talking about how it was received. And until then, may the Force be with you. We have so many shows on the Not Safer Network. Download the entire first season of the show, Not Afraid of the Star Wars fan base, but maybe it should be? Jedi Master's Degree. Two movies enter and only one movie leaves. Listen to Box Office Battle. Learn the history of television one show at a time with the podcast In Syndication. Music, anime, pop culture, movies, TV show, and the random babbling of two dudes who need to find something better to do. Check out A Feast of Geeks. The podcast that's perfectly described with its title, Movies with Wrestlers. And download the entire first season of the radio drama about a serial killer ripped from the pages of a hundred-year-old cookbook, A Thousand Ways to Please a Husband.